0: James A. Michener's uh, The Source uh, has a fictional character, an archaeologist, uh, Dr. John Killein, who worked with Israeli Ilan Eliab, modeled after the uh, famous Masada dig archaeologist Igal Yadin, trying to uh, better understand the nature of the people whose artifacts he uncovered. Uh, Kalinein asked Eliyav for a reading material about the Jews, the only people uh, to have survived from the ancient period to this time. Eliyav responded, read Deuteronomy five times. It's the great central book of the Jews, and if you master it, you will understand us. Eliyav attributed this success to the words found in Deuteronomy, in the Torah. Ki am kadosh Adonai am For you are a consecrated and a treasured people who God chose from among all the other peoples of the earth to be his people. Consecrated and treasured are titles Jews ought to be proud of, but instead they promote anxiety. William Norman Ewer's pithy verse, How Odd of God to Choose the Jews, (laughs) illustrates the ambivalence the concept of chosenness evokes, often because it's interpreted as conceit and superiority and forms the basis for racist ideologies. Ambivalent 20th century philosopher Mordechai Kaplan removed all references to chosenness including the words, Asher bachar banu mikol ha who has chosen us from among all nations from the blessing before the reading of the Torah, from his Reconstructionist movement prayer book uh, that he uh, used for his movement. In a repost that shifts the responsibility to us, Jews counter the aforementioned rhyme, how odd of God to choose the Jews with, it's not so odd, the Jews chose God, thereby providing a better understanding of the concept of chosenness. Tradition holds that Jews were the last group to take the offer, to accept the offer, to take the responsibility of the covenant. After all, the author of Deuteronomy portrayed Israelites as insignificant. It's not because you're the most exceptional peoples that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, he wrote. You, in fact, are the smallest of people. Rather than an act of hubris, the covenant is understood as a special assignment, a burden one that my teacher, Henry Slonimsky describes in these words. The chosenness, the special love that God bears for Israel, seems beyond reason. For are the Jews better than the others? Surely both are sinners. God, so far from playing favorites, imposes special burdens and special responsibilities on Israel. The prophet's stern reminder that special rights bring special duties, holds equal force, that the protagonist must bear the burdens commensurate with the protagonist's role. Jews live a paradox. We wish to be seen as equal to all other human beings and therefore eschew the concept of being God's chosen people. But on a personal level, we devote endless energy to teaching our children that they are special, that they are chosen, fueled in part by living in the United States that has long framed its place on the world stage as being more powerful and better than any other nation, even though we face a new reality today. Nevertheless, at a time of a national waning of exceptionalism, individual exceptionalism is on the rise, fueled by the belief that everyone is extraordinary and entitled to the same opportunities, whether gifted or lacking in skill or intellectual and physical endowment. No matter how untrained or ignorant they might be, they believe that they have the knowledge and the wisdom and the right to tell doctors how to treat illness, clergy how to minister, elected officials how to govern, educators and coaches how to instruct. They feel entitled to speak about everything. And even though sometimes they are wrong, they're never uncertain. Legendary helicopter or Velcro parents who swoop in to save their children from poor results or defeat are emblematic of our age in which every child is a winner gets inflated grades, shiny good try trophies, and is protected from anxiety or disappointment or unhappiness. In the extreme, the mother in John O'Farrell's novel may contain nuts, poses as her daughter in order to take her upper school entrance exams because she doesn't trust her daughter to do well enough on the examinations herself. It's the paradox of a parent wishing to help her child to achieve success while simultaneously undermining the child's self-esteem by preventing the child from either achieving independence or experiencing personal consequences. Children who have never had to deal with defeat because parents ensure success are deprived of coping skills. They cannot assess their own abilities and as a result fall victim to egocentrism, omnipotence and invincibility as they exaggerate their own self-worth. In adulthood, they're often delivered a harsh reality check dispensed by demanding professors and bosses, colleagues, spouses, and there's no parent to make it all all right. Child psychologist Dan Kinlon, author of Too Much of a Good Thing, Raising children of character in an indulgent age warns that our discomfort with discomfort will not inoculate our children with psychological immunity. In this comparison, he avows, you have to be exposed to pathogens or your body won't know how to respond to an attack. Kids also need exposure to discomfort, failure, and struggle. I know, he says, parents who call up the school to complain if their kid doesn't get a part in the school play or make the cut for the baseball team. I know of one kid who said that he didn't like another kid in the carpool, so instead of having their child learn to tolerate the other kid, they offered to drive them to school by themselves. By the time they're teenagers, they have no experience with hardship. Civilization is about adapting to less-than-perfect situations. Yet parents often have this um, instantaneous reaction to unpleasantness, which is, I can fix this. The role of parents is not always to make things right by preventing personal hardship, but rather teaching children how to deal with failure and its attendant disquiet and still land on their feet. College deans call delicate incoming freshmen with undeveloped coping skills teacups because they are fragile and they break down whenever things do not go their way. Some schools appoint unofficial deans of parents to deal with parents who hover over their children so chronic is this problem that the University of Vermont hired parent bouncers to keep meddling parents at bay. Parents so stuck to their children thwart their efforts at individuation, giving a different meaning to the Latin term in loco parentis, <laughs> which traditionally is translated as in place of parents, but a rather more apt Translation would be, crazy like parents. No wonder the products of such intense parental overinvestment have difficulty navigating the shoals of life. David Elkine's The Hurried Child Growing Up Too Fast and Too Soon and his companion volume, Ties That Stress, were harbingers of increasing overindulgence and overscheduling along with the itinerant symptoms, physical and emotional issues, eating disorders, irritability, sleep problems, somatic illness, drug problems, and worse. In 1981, he cautioned, today's child has become the unwilling, unintended victim of overwhelming distress, of of stress. The stress born of rapid, bewildering social change and constantly rising expectations. The change in the summer program of camps reflects the new attitude that the years of childhood are not to be frittered away by engaging in activities merely for fun, rather the years are to be used to perfect skills and abilities that are the same of those of adults. We expect them to adapt to more adult life programs than we adapt to their child life programs. No wonder hurried children enter adult world believing that they are better than anyone else. When they emerge from the cauldron of overindulged and protected childhood, they are often entitled, self-absorbed, neurotically aggressive, narcissistic adults who believe that they can accomplish anything that they set out to do, an attitude embedded in the popular lyrics of It's All About Me by the Bratz. Who will walk the red carpet? Who will be the star with her name in lights? Who will be the runway queen? I'm heading for the big time, yeah. I've got what it takes. I'm the star who's gonna shine so bright. Everyone in the world will know my name. It's all about me and what I can do. I'm gonna win and I can't lose. It's all about me. Rabbi Harold Kushner in How How Good Do We Have to Be emphasizes that when we try to be perfect, we pressure our children to be perfect. Kushner uses the example of the national spelling bee to make his point. Every year at finals, organizers have to provide a comfort room where children who have spelled hundreds of words perfectly can go to throw things and cry and be comforted by their parents when they finally make one mistake. The hundreds of correct words are forgotten as they feel like failures for having gotten one word wrong. Life is not like a spelling bee where one mistake wipes out all the things that we have done right. Life, he says, is like a baseball season where even the best team loses one third of its games, and even the worst team has its days of brilliance. I believe, says Kushner, in a God who knows how complicated human life is, how difficult it is to be a good person at times, and who expects not a perfect life, but an honest effort at a good life. We search for perfection in ourselves and in our children and when they are anything less, we register our disappointment because the best grades propel children into the most prestigious prestigious schools, significant careers, status and security. You are special. You are special haunts many who wind up on the psychoanalytic couch where, the, where they complain that they cannot find joy or happiness because they're unable to deal with failure, although constantly reaching for the prize that they cannot enjoy, even if they attain it. The irony is that children with happy childhoods who feel that they are the center of the universe can wind up as dissatisfied lost adults. Gene Twang and Keith Campbell, authors of Narc- The Narcissism* narcissism epidemic, living in an age of entitlement, point out that narcissistic traits are on the rise. From 2002 to 2007, college students' scores on the narcissistic personality inventory rose twice as fast as in the previous two decades. Parents who regularly tell their kids, you are special, in an attempt to boost self-esteem might be interested to know that a positive response to the item, I think I am a special person, on the narcissistic personality inventory is an indicator of narcissism. Furthermore, in 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school students, are you a very important person? 12% said yes. In 2006, the proportion was 80%. In his forthcoming book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman calls the inability to objectively evaluate our own talents and abilities a planning fallacy, characteristic of this generation dubbed Generation F, the fluid generation, the Facebook generation, and even delicately called the effed-up generation. Because its its constituents always feel special and operate by a new set of rules. I deserve it, I desire it, I buy it, I flaunt it, I toss it, all because I am worth it. Unfortunately, we're now feeling the economic impact of a generation without the ability to defer gratification that spent with abandon, incurred unprecedented debts without a notion of how it would be repaid, consumed resources without a hint of what happens when they're exhausted. Entitled individuals hooked on high self-esteem took greater risks and considered fewer consequences of their behavior as demonstrated in the financial world. Given that most of us do not subscribe to the Jewish notion of chosenness, but rather to individual chosenness, what can Judaism teach us to help our children avoid that path that can lead to a lifetime of personal unhappiness? How will today's kids deal with defeat or hardship if they grow up in the equivalent of Garrison Keillor's fictional Lake Wobegon, where all children are above average? Psychologist Wendy Mogul, author of Blessing of the Skinned Knee, using Jewish teachings to raise self-reliant children, suggests that overindulgent parents who give their children perfect lives are creating a handicapped royalty. Mogul notes in her most recent book, The Blessing of the B-minus, that not offering children every possible opportunity feels like bad parenting, even though it's really a gift. Mogul's Jewish approach includes accepting that children are both unique and ordinary and teaching them the value of work, resiliency, self-reliance, courage and to be grateful for blessings. Jewish life has always been related, not to success, but to a superordinate moral standard. A Jewish child is born with a purpose. On the eighth day, a child takes on the responsibility of the covenant a partnership with God to repair the broken world, the true meaning of chosenness. Anything else is ancillary to that primary task. Children should not be worshipped because they are a reflection of our parenting and success, but revered because they are created Elohim, in God's image, and know that even if they fail at a task, they are not failures. Driving home on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, psychologist Daniel Gottlieb's car was struck by a loosened tractor-trailer wheel moving at 65 miles an hour in the opposite direction. Careening across the highway, the wheel crushed the roof of his car, breaking his neck, rendered a quadriplegic at age 33. It was the beginning of additional disasters, the end of his marriage, the subsequent death of his ex-wife, raising children alone as a profoundly disabled parent, and the birth of a grandchild diagnosed with autism. Dr. Gottlieb rebuilt his shattered life and then published Letters to Sam, a grandfather's lessons on love, loss, and the gifts of life. Gottlieb recounts advice to a man who did good work in his field but considered himself a failure for not achieving anything important and rising to the top of his profession. You're right. You're not important. In the largest scheme of things, none of us is important. But that doesn't mean you're a failure. You're not a failure. You've done a faithful job at what was yours to do. Quoting Ben Zoma's rabbinic dictum, Hu Ashir Hasameach Bechelko, who is rich, he who is satisfied with his lot in life, is one thing, but it is quite another living it. Judaism provides rich examples of those who lived this and other examples who could not come to terms with not reaching their goals in spite of years of struggle and yearning Moses, for example, did not achieve his objective of entering the promised land, and he felt like a failure. But that did not negate his lifetime of accomplishment. Toward the end of his life, Rabbi Zusiah of Hanapol, a 19th century Hasidic rabbi, was questioned why he trembled with fear. When I am called to give a final account of my life before the heavenly throne, I'm not afraid of being asked why were you not like Abraham because I can answer that I'm not Abraham and if I'm asked why were you not like Moses I can answer because I'm not Moses but if I'm asked why were you not like Zeus what will I say then The goal of Jewish parenting should not be pressing our children to seek perfection but rather to utilize their God-given gifts to maximize their abilities and to lead satisfying and upstanding ethical lives so that they can honestly say why they were themselves and not someone else. Good job.